This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by the Arizona Theatre Company. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how the Fox Tucson Theater is reviving an important piece of movie palace history. The Invisible Theater is celebrating 50 years of providing the full range of performing arts in Tucson. Susan Clausen and Molly McCasson share some favorite stories and their excitement for what is still to come. And learn about the creative spirit of artist and UA educator Sama Alshabi, receiver of a Guggenheim Fellowship for her groundbreaking achievements in photography. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. During this time of social isolation, the true movie-going theatrical experience is still missed by many. Keep in mind that the overall theatrical experience itself has been evolving ever since movies became a reality about 125 years ago. A traditional element in many theaters before World War II was live musical accompaniment, usually from a piano or organ player discreetly positioned near the screen. When the effort to reopen the long-abandoned 1930s movie palace, the Fox Tucson Theater, began in 1999, restoring the theater's complex Wurlitzer organ mechanism was always a goal. This month, that 22-year labor of love comes to fruition. The Fox will screen the silent film Nosferatu, a symphony of horror, featuring live accompaniment by organist Dave Wickerham. I visited the theater to listen to the fully restored Wurlitzer organ and to talk with three people who have worked to make this happen. I'm Graham Davis, and I am the pipe organ restorer and installer here at the Fox Theater. Bonnie Schock, executive director of Fox Tucson Theater. All right, and you, sir? Andy McWhorter. I'm a member of the board of directors of the Fox Theater Foundation, and I've been basically the organ committee chairman since its inception. What kind of a journey has that been from going from organ committee to organ and impending performance? It's actually difficult to describe that because it's been through uh, everything, <laughs> every emotion. Uh, it's been fascinating, though. I never in my life thought I would know as much about pipe organs as I do at this point. Uh, they're amazing instruments. Uh, I fell in love with them, hearing them as a, as a kid. I'm just so excited that we're able to bring this into the Fox Theater at this time. What is it that you think is special about the Wurlitzer organ? There used to be a section in the record stores dedicated to Wurlitzer LPs, and it's kind of fallen behind now. What do you think is the magic of what this instrument can do? First, I think part of the magic is it can do almost anything, from a you know sound effect to different voices, a wide range of different things. But my own personal opinion is... I like it because it's truly live music. It's music that uh, consists of air going through a pipe. It's not uh, through electronics. It's not recorded. It's not through a microphone. It's truly live, like you would get from a symphony or a marching band or something like that. And as a former marching band person, I love that. <laughs> Graham, tell me how your interest in the Wurlitzer organ first originated. And also, back me up 
There used to be whole sections of Wurlitzer LPs. Yes, that's very true. In the 1950s and 60s, uh, there was a renaissance of the popularity of these instruments because of an American organist called George Wright. And George Wright was hired by the Hi-Fi Record Company in Los Angeles, California, to make a whole series of recordings using the latest technology, which we now know as stereo. And so uh, the organ in theater here is divided on each side of the proscenium arch. So there's a, a built-in stereo effect. And the organs that George Wright recorded were also in two organ chambers on each side of the listening space. And so they were ideal for showing off the new stereo technology. And that's why they used the, the Wurlitzer organ in its two chambers to sell these recordings and stereo technology to the people at large. But what made you a fan? Well, I uh, was a little, just a bit young in those days. Uh, I wasn't actually born until 56, but I went to a school that stressed music and uh, was put into the choir. And as a, a nine-year-old, fell greatly in love with the, uh, the Anglican church liturgy. And uh, I got bitten by the bug at a very early age. But my grandfather grew up in the 1920s and loved the theater organ. So when I showed an interest in piano and uh, later on the church organ, he steered me in the direction of the Wurlitzer. And in 1969, a very famous American organist called Lynn Larson, one of George Wright's students, came down to Australia and helped bring to Australia the renaissance of the theater organ. And my grandfather took me as a 11 or 12 year old boy to see this performance of this young American player on one of the theater organs still left in Melbourne in those days. And that was another bug that bit me. And so I was able to join the Theater Organ Society in Melbourne and learn a little bit about how to play them and also how to work on them before I actually left school. Bonnie, when this crazy Wurlitzer train arrived at the Fox Theater, uh, what, what made you get on board? Well, it actually had already arrived before my tenure began, which I'm really grateful for, uh, that it's here and that people saw fit to steward it forward. I think the thing for me that is so special about an instrument like this, my background is in theater, and um, I'm deeply in love with buildings like this that sort of hold lots of memories. And this particular instrument, to me, it feels like it's playing the whole theater. As Andy was saying, there's a, a liveness to it. It's, it's real music, it's, it's acoustic music, um, and it's playing the whole building. It feels like the whole space is playing for you. It's almost like the building is coming alive. To me, it's a metaphor of the kinds of uh, experiences that spaces and places like this can hold and can share that are completely unique. Tell me, Bonnie, about the idea of bringing Nosferatu to the Fox and why this seemed like a good fit. The Fox was built as a movie palace. And so the films of that era are the films that this space was built to house. Nosferatu is really the ultimate vampire film. It's the first real vampire film upon which so many tropes and conventions of the genre were based. It's just an extraordinary visual feast. And then when you add the Wurlitzer <laughs> into that equation, it's also a feast for the ears and your whole body um, becomes engaged. Andy, Bonnie just touched on the history of this building, and I'd like to know from your perspective and those of your colleagues who work on the board here, how important is the history of the Fox and how do you think it is best maintained as we move forward here into the future? For me, the history is, is 
a, a huge part of the theater. I've been on this project since 1999, even years before it reopened, I've been working on it. And during that time, learned the history of the theater from its inception and construction and what happened then. During the years of the 30s, 40s, 50s, the Mickey Mouse Club, it was literally the social center of Tucson for little kids every Saturday morning. When we started this project in the early 2000s, uh, we had a gentleman who videoed people, some who were here opening night, some who were here in the 30s and 40s. And we got a lot of stories about people in the Mickey Mouse Club. And yes, many uh, came on horseback, some roller skated, some rode their bikes. Um, they used to, in the back section over there, leading out to stone, it was just a long row of bikes that everybody parked, none of which were locked. They just put them there. Ultimately, when we started the rehabilitation project, the goal was to recreate the theater as it was on opening night in 1930, and that included having a pipe organ. The existing organ was taken out in the early 50s, got parted out. They just weren't using it much, so it kind of disappeared. Okay, well, let's get into the nuts and bolts a little bit with Graham. People like myself who get chances to do this try to find relevance through diversity. It's all well and good to do a historic restoration, but it's very complicated to do that because these machines, these are very mechanical, these instruments, and they have large rooms filled with switching gear. It's very complex and difficult to show a board of directors. Why should they spend all this money if there's not any relevance uh, just for the sake of historic restoration? So we've strived since the beginning of this project, I first met with the board in the year 2000 to discuss it. So we had to have a plan. We had some consultants involved, really fine players. We have different sounds uh, in this instrument than perhaps they would have someplace else in California or perhaps in Texas. Uh, I've done a couple of these in public buildings myself. Let me ask you, what's your favorite part of the process? Well, the fun part is when you put the pipes in, because all the work you've, you've been doing for the past 10 years is leading up to putting the pipes in. And once the pipes go in, then you have a chance to hear, as Bonnie has so beautifully said, the sound of the room. The room gives back to the, to the sound of the pipes, and they, they work together in a kind of a marriage. This is called tonal finishing, where the organ builder, like me, will have a, an assistant, and we set the volume of every single pipe. Now, this organ will be a little over 2,000 pipes when we, when we walk, finish the, the, this part of the installation. And so we're looking at having to manipulate each one of those pipes uh, at nighttime when there's no one around, when it's nice and quiet, to get <laughs> just the right amount of sound and just the right amount of tone. That's the fun part. It's really the fun part. Thanks to my guests from the Fox Tucson Theater. The debut of the fully restored Wurlitzer Theater Organ happens just in time for Halloween on Saturday, October 30th, with a screening of F.W. Murnau's 1922 masterpiece Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror. The film will be accompanied live by organist Dave Wickerham. You can find all the details online. The Invisible Theater got its name not because of its lack of visibility, but rather in recognition of the kind of vibrant energy that flows between an audience and a live performance stage. For 50 years now, the cast and crew of Invisible Theater have been keeping that energy alive. And later this month, they present a retro-spectacular 
that pays tribute to what they've achieved and the connections they've built across the community. Joining me now are the event's hosts, Susan Clausen, who's been IT's Managing Artistic Director for 47 of those 50 years, and actress and playwright Molly McCasson. Perhaps better known together, they are Sue's and Malls. The theater has been a wonderful place for me to work as an actress, as a writer, uh, sometimes as a director. It's just a, been a really nurturing and creative environment. I love the ensemble feeling, and my friend Suze is still here. <laughs> yeah, she's a lifer. Suze, what, what do you remember about first meeting Molly, and how is it that the two of you began to perform together? This is a great story. Okay, so when I first moved to town, I was already a member of Actors' Equity, our union, and there was one company in town that was equity. It was called Arizona Civic Theater, better known now as ATC. We were auditioning for a play called Hot L Baltimore. (laughs) And, you know, fortunately, Molly and I were auditioning for different parts. So we go in, and Sandy Rosenthal, blessed memory, uh, every theater in this town owes a great debt of gratitude to Sandy Rosenthal. Sandy started crying at our audition, and he left the room. Malls and I looked at each other, and it was, oh, my God. He came back, and he said, it is so wonderful to see real actors work. And our friendship was cemented at that point, and we both got the parts in, and this is Tucson trivia, it was the first full frontal nude scene ever on a stage in Tucson. It was not Molly or myself. But <laughs> thank was, heavens. Thank heavens is right. But we were in that play, Hot L Baltimore. Is that how you remember it, Miles? That's exactly how I remember it, Suze. (laughs) And then outside of performing together in plays, Suze told me once that the two of you would perform comedy. Yes. That's how we got the name, Miles and Suze. Again, we had joined the Invisible Theater, and, you know, we would do workshops, and it was very organic, and Mm -hmm. uh, we both realized we had a background in improvisation. Malls was in New York with Paul Sills, the father of improv and story theater on Broadway. And I was in an improv company in Denver. And we started doing improv together, performance improv, not improv to develop a character, but rather as an art form of performance. Now, this was in the 70s. (laughs) We played everywhere. We played every feminist (laughs) gathering we played the double tree. We always had a run at the double tree. Old delectables. We started downtown, didn't we? Yeah. Cafe Olay. Oh, that was great. Cafe Olay was so much fun. It was extremely exciting. I mean, Suze uh, was completely out there and daring, and we had so much fun. And the audiences were not accustomed in Tucson to seeing, you know, complete freeform improv. You know, we'd ask for ideas, they'd throw things out, and then we'd grab a hat, you know, <laughs> or a scarf or something. And then we were off on a scene, and it was really fun. And it was very political. <laughs> it was very political. Uh, we were the darlings of the feminist movement, playing every ERA rally. <laughs> we absolutely loved it every... so much fun. Yeah, every, every moment of the excitement. And 
for those that know us, we were great because we're really different types. As short and Semitic as I am, Molly has this <laughs> tall Nordic look. I like to think of us as Woody Allen and Diane Keaton. It has <laughs> that kind of effect. <laughs> Yeah, but we did. It was so much fun, and it was very daring. We were young and without much fear and much more interest in, in like, uh, kind of making not a statement, but being a part of change and, and, and helping other people come together and feel good about it. So our scenes were, were just all about what was going on right then. And we opened for Geraldine Ferrero. Didn't right. we yeah, and we sang, Ferraro, Ferraro, we love you, Ferraro, <laughs> you're only a vote away. Okay. When Molly chose to run for city council, <laughs> it was the end of our career. And people would say to me, Suze, why is Molly running for political office? And I would say, it's the highest paying job an actor can get in this town. <laughs> <laughs> There's a story in 1982 about a horse. It was an original play, Louise Bezaisen, and we had a horse, Bonnie the Horse. Do you remember that, Mal? Just vaguely. And Gail was Cassandra riding the horse. And, now, and this was, was this, in Himmel Park. This yes, was it a, was at him. I was in that. Right. You directed, and it was an intense Yes, experience. there was a lot going on, but Bonnie the horse, who was, you know, trailered in every night. So let me get this straight. The horse had a trailer, but none of the cast did. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> and the horse got catering. Lots of carrots and stuff. <laughs> the cast did not. I totally had <laughs> forgotten that Gail rode in on a horse. Gail was Cassandra, and the sa- she rode in side saddle with a very slippery I can, I can see gown. It. The horse got stung. I mean, nothing really terrible happened other than it bucked a little. Gail slid down the horse. Oh, God. I you remember that? And she yes. Slid, but I, she didn't I, miss I, a line. She did not miss a line. But the horse never worked in this town again. Talk about IT's commitment to working with women and people from the queer community and other voices that weren't getting the stage time that they deserved. It was an awakening time. It and I was. Think, and I think that empowered us to try things that we really didn't know we knew how to do. Right. Um, and, and IT gave us that opportunity because... You know, we would sit at a meeting and say, well, who can do this? And I I can. I can direct this show. I had <laughs> no idea if I could, but, and that's you know, I 500 think. shows later, I guess, you know, I still think, I think I can. I think I can. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I felt about playwriting. Yeah. I mean, if it hadn't been Invisible Theater, you know, it's like the electricity wants a place to go to. Um, you know, want, the current wants to connect, and that's what the IT really was a creative, grounded connection. And I think, you know, now, which is so wonderful, in, in addition to us and the longevity that we have had, we do have next generation, you know, coming up. And that's really exciting. It's side by side. It's a respect for the past. It's uh, an excitement for the present. And it's looking toward the future. And we have always made the commitment through this pandemic that we were about live theater. That's how Invisible Theater got its name. It's from the invisible energy that flows between performers and an audience that makes the magic of theater. And that theater can 
only be experienced. That magic can only take hold when we are in a theater with community experiencing the live arts. Arts are a great tool for change, for understanding, enlightening, and opening minds. Susan Clausen and Molly McCasson will be joined by a host of local artists, including Catherine Burns, Joe Bourne, Crystal Stark, and Christine Vivona, for two nights, October 30th and the 31st. This star-studded retro-spectacular cabaret is to celebrate the Invisible Theater's 50th anniversary. You can find more information on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The photographs of Sama al-Shabi blur the line between the surreal and the hyperreal. She often combines the experiences of women and girls with the natural world in symbiotic ways, redefined as struggles in a digital domain. This UA educator has now been recognized with one of this nation's highest artistic honors, a Guggenheim Fellowship. Next, we'll find out what that means in her own words in a story produced by Andrew Brown. I saw the letter in the email. I've applied to the Guggenheim before, so I know what the rejection looks like. Um, And it was a different subject heading. It was extraordinarily confusing. I didn't really know what to do. And I think I was walking around in a daze for an hour trying to figure out if I could tell somebody or not, because it was clear that you couldn't tell anybody. So finally I told my husband. I'm Sama Al-Shabi. I'm a professor of photography, video, and imaging at the School of Art, University of Arizona. I've just been selected for the Guggenheim Fellowship in photography um, in the creative arts section. I'm Palestinian-Iraqi. I was born in Basra, Iraq in 1973. In the 80s, obviously, there was a, a war between Iraq and Iran, and we escaped lived across different countries in the Middle East, eventually moved to the United States when I was in high school. We came in the United States legally, but um, just lost our ability to keep a visa. Um, And this is a period now we're talking about the United States having another war with Iraq, the Kuwait, when Iraq invaded Kuwait. Eventually, I was able to get refugee status by pleading our case in immigration court in INS and went to undergraduate at Columbia College, Chicago, art school. In one sense, my mother is an artist. I mean, she never formally studied. Her father didn't think that was an appropriate line of work for a young woman to do, and people care about careers and and livelihoods in the Middle East, and so she didn't have that opportunity, but she was a painter, and she always made um, beautiful things. She, She still to this day makes all the costumes for my, for my work. Um, she can fabricate anything. My father taught me photography when I was quite young. He was an avid, uh, you know, hobbyist. My mother being Palestinian and my father being Iraqi, just the, the kind of upheaval of our people was something that I was always really obsessed with and thinking about. And then living in the United States in the 90s, 80s and 90s, and seeing how uh, people knew very little about where I was from, And I couldn't understand how people could be suffering so much there. 
and the rest of the world knew about it, but the United States didn't seem to have it very much in the media. So I had this inclination that I would be a war photographer, like that's really what I wanted to do. I was very obsessed with war, um, having been raised in one. After receiving you know, refugee status and eventual green card, like I had access to um, financial aid. And so I went to Columbia with intent to be in the photojournalism track, which is in the photography department. And um, I really tried <laughs> to be a photojournalist and try to make documentary images. I was not very good at it. I quite naturally just started making photographs in my bedroom, photographing myself, writing on the walls. It was like the really early traces of what I do now. Um, but I didn't know that was art. All throughout my career, I have come back to the subject of women in, in Iraq in, in various ways. So the Guggenheim proposal, its working title is to speak of absence. And I'm thinking about the tradition of text and image and making narratives, but through non-traditional materials and not necessarily with a camera. The subject implicates the United States role um, and those they ushered into power in Iraq and how that destabilized Iraq, especially th for women. The project explores women's absence from public life and, and social space post-U.S. invasion. I really did make a, a case for the fact in, in the proposal that the United States is complicit into the violence it's ushered into Iraq, and it has a role to play. And I'm not saying the arts has ignored that relationship to Iraq and what happens in the Middle East. There has been some very important exhibitions in the United States, but to the degree that these two regions, right, the United States and the Middle East, are so tied together for so long. It still just surprises me that we don't talk about this more. Well, I think we all feel very anxious this year about many things anyway, but I, I, I was already feeling like this year's a bit complicated and I, it's hard to imagine into the future of making work when so many institutions are shut down and the arts is really struggling. and. Um, but I did this proposal last year, and it takes about a year almost to find out. I am so happy that this is this is the proposal that I won the grant for. It's daunting, right? But that's what you want a project that's worthy of a Guggenheim, right? To do something that's very daunting, and I really um, I'm humbled by it, and I feel like that kind of fear and excitement is the right energy to go into the grant with. I felt really darn good, but it's 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 a serious subject, and I and I want to do it. I want to do right by it. So those feelings they sit in the same space. We heard Sama Alshabi, recipient of the 2021 Guggenheim Fellowship in Photography. Her story was produced by Andrew Brown. There are a few of Alshabi's photos on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org, with a link to many more that you can see on her own website. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studio. AZPM's interim news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you to Arizona Theatre Company for their support of Arizona Public Media.